in uh, 2005, Senator John McCain wrote a book entitled Character is Destiny, Inspiring Stories Every Young Person Should Know and Every Adult Should Remember. I was reminded of this through all of the media coverage of his funeral and editorializing about his life, which clearly hit a resonant chord in our cultural moment. The phrase, character is destiny, was coined by the Greek philosopher Heraclitus and refers to the idea that all of us actually participate in choosing the future that comes to us. We're not simply victims of faith. In the book's introduction, McCain writes this, It is your character and your character alone that will make your life happy or unhappy. That is all that really passes for destiny. And you choose it. No one else can give it to you or deny it to you. No rival can steal it from you. And no friend can give it to you. Others can encourage you to make the right choices or discourage you, but you choose. And with that, I was reminded of an exchange I had with a young man who was preparing for college. I think he was about 17 or 18. And he asked me one day if I thought he was foolish for not taking advantage of an opportunity to cheat on the SAT. He said the proctor was very loosey-goosey. He was very, very encouraging of the students to take more time than officially allotted to be sure they, they had done all they could on each of the sections. Go ahead and help each other out, he said. The majority availed themselves of the proctor's offer. However, this, this young man who had come to speak with me had stuck with the formal time restraints, and he was now wondering to himself if that was just stupid, if it was foolish, given the cutthroat competition of the college admissions process. Well, on a very basic level, he was asking me whether dishonest success or integrity was more important. I was impressed that he was questioning this at all, given the cultural climate being so heavily weighted on the side of success at any and all costs. Was he a fool? Well, I said in a sense he was. But it was just this sort of foolishness that helped the human race grow into its greatest glory. If only we had more fools like him. Maybe you have already been doing this, but I would invite you to do a thought experiment. Had you been in this young man's shoes, what would you have done and why? And then I'll ask you to hold to the side of consciousness your perspective on the current state of our national character and that of our various leaders. There's a whole lot we could talk about there. But for our purposes today, that would take us down a rabbit hole of infinite dimensions. Our scriptures today remind us that what we hold as our deepest values shapes the character choices we're going to make. 
We just heard our ancient text speak some very homely things like this in that very first passage from Proverbs. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor or reputation is better than silver or gold. The rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is maker of them all. These are simple, pithy, and damning of current conditions. Some scholars think that the book of Proverbs arose during a time of corruption and moral weakening. And I suppose some of us here today might feel that description characterizes our own time. Personally, I'm not certain that our time is especially corrupt. What I am certain of is that we're subject to the same sort of corruption today as our forebears were over 2,000 years ago. It's quite compelling, isn't it, to consider that their hard-won wisdom is as relevant today as it was then. It's kind of breathtaking, really, given the sweep of history. Would you rather have a name associated with wealth or one associated with great character? Just do that as a thought experiment as well, disembodied from your current experience, just in general. Which would you rather have? We want to believe these are not mutually exclusive goals, of course, but still in a forced choice test, which comes out on top? And I'm noting that the text functions subversively in our context here today, where two of the mightiest mightiest capitalist symbols came crashing down 17 years ago in the wealthiest city and the wealthiest nation in the world. Be reminded that the anniversary of that calamity is, comes on Tuesday. It was also a Tuesday in 2001. Bright blue sky in that morning. I remember it vividly. Proverbs places the moral life squarely within the realm of choice. We have choices to make. All of the time presents us with myriad choices. Many of these carry moral freight. That is, they carry some component of meaning that's larger than our individual selfish desire. What am I going to do in this situation? How shall I live? To what ends shall I direct my time and energy? What commitments and behaviors actually hallow life? Who am I in relation to everyone else? How do we belong to one another? Do we belong to one another? And if so, what does that mean? Well, since you've taken the time to be here this morning, you likely entertain these questions, at least from time to time. But I also know that a good chunk of the population out beyond these walls has these questions sort of lurking around the fringe of consciousness. It must be so, given our belief, we were all formed by the same loving creator whose very breath pumps our lungs. We can't help ourselves. Our moral intuition is written into our DNA. We can't help ourselves wondering about what a life is for, really. Well, we can put the question off. We can smother it over. With every sort of preoccupation, we can stuff it, we can drown it, we can ignore it, but then something happens, say something terrible and shocking. At least for a moment, the clutter is ripped away and we see our choices more starkly exposed. That happened en masse on our island 17 years ago. People flocked 
to churches that week and the weeks following. They flocked. Why? Because they had become instantly unmoored from what they thought they knew. When I wrote my doctoral dissertation, I had the pleasure of speaking with a number of people our culture would identify as leaders. One of them, a man named Samuel Pizar, was one of the youngest survivors of the Holocaust. Captured and incarcerated at the age of 12, he lost his entire family to Hitler's horrors before escaping from Auschwitz at the age of 16. By his own recounting to me, in order to survive, he nurtured a very clever and canny personality, and his life could have turned out very differently, he reported, than it did. He told me he had become a very feral child. But somehow, through the nurturing of the larger community over time, managed to achieve doctorates at both Harvard and the Sorbonne, eventually writing the treatise that became the West's blueprint for economic engagement with Russia and China and the Far East. He became a U.S. citizen by an act of Congress and was shortlisted for the Nobel Peace Prize. Post 9-11 and struggling mightily with the meanings and tensions of retribution and forgiveness, he became an advocate for finding pathways into a reconciled future, holding a number of significant international political positions. He feared the world was once again veering into camps of depraved indifference for human life. Now, Samuel Pizar was not a perfect man, if such a thing could be conceived, but he was a man who made a series of choices over the course of his life that clearly answered the question, what is a life for really, in a way that dignified, ultimately, the global human community? And I wonder, how did that happen? He could have chosen very differently, especially given his history. I'm thinking maybe John McCain was cut from a similar cloth, as in much a smaller way, the young man who came to ask me if he was a fool because he chose integrity over a dishonest success. I say, all of them fools for certain. And then I'm reminded of another small story told by Rabbi Shifra Penzia about her great-aunt Sassi, who rode a bus home on a snowy evening in Munich during the Nazi pogroms. Suddenly, SS stormtroopers stopped and boarded the bus and began examining identification papers of the passengers. Most were annoyed, but a few were terrified. Jews were being told, to leave the bus and get into the truck around the corner. Sussy watched from her seat in the rear as a soldier systematically worked their way down the aisle. She began to tremble. Tears began streaming down her face. And when the man sitting next to her noticed 
that she was crying, he asked her why. I don't have the papers you have. I'm a Jew. They're going to take me. The man exploded with disgust. He began to curse and scream at her, You stupid, expletive, deleted. I can't stand being near you. The SS men asked what all the yelling was about. Damn her, the man shouted angrily, My wife has forgotten her papers again. I'm so fed up. She always does this. The soldiers laughed and moved on. Sussy never saw the man again. She ever never even knew his name. Well, in that moment, some larger frame of reference, some big answer to the question, what is a life for, grabbed hold of this man. Something other than his own immediate self-interest directed his actions. He placed himself squarely against the prevailing corruption of his own society. And let's remind ourselves what a minority opinion that was in the society of his day. That's not a small thing. Would that we could see much more of that in our own society, a squaring off from the corruption that engulfs all of us. Perhaps some otherwise trite-sounding yet profoundly true aphorisms expressed his thinking. For instance, something about a good name, maybe a name associated with compassion, courage, integrity, was worth more than, well, at that moment, worth more even than life itself. Or maybe he had taken to heart the admonition we heard from James, who, who wrote, you do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think that uh, maybe you'd agree with me, I don't know. Matters of character receive far too little focused attention in our culture. I don't know where it's discussed or especially taught or we rarely speak of virtue which isn't to say there's none anywhere to be discovered but few seem ready to hold themselves accountable to virtuous ends perhaps that's due to how technology strips away our privacy today I was thinking a lot about that this week it seems everyone can know anything about any one of us, right? In a world that transparent, who dares set a high bar on virtue? Feet of clay abound. No one withstands the great scrutiny. No one. Nevertheless, or maybe it's clearer, that in such a culture as ours, great character comes with a humble self-awareness while striving to hear and to act upon 
those famous voices of the better angels of our nature, as Lincoln put it. As James wrote to his friends, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? In other words, if what you say you believe doesn't actually show up in the content of your life. I think a great church invests itself in helping to create a great people formed by the faith that calls us into our better selves. And you know, that's hard work, really important work. But you can sense that it's also simultaneously ennobling and vivifying and redignifying of our humanity and our existence and our purpose. You can feel it, can't you? That's the fundamental reason for our existence. That is the existence of Christ church. Mm. Helping each other grow up into the persons God intended from the beginning for the sake of the world. Now that's some purpose. Mm.